Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 315. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lended FinTech. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Nigel Verdon. He is the CEO and co-founder of Rails Bank. Now, Rails Bank is a really interesting company. They're a new type of fintech company focused on embedded finance, really making embedded finance a reality. Nigel gets into what that actually means and uh, and how they're doing that. Uh, we talk about some of the different companies they're working with. We talk about the different geographies and how they differ when it comes to embedded finance. We talk about the opportunities for brands to offer financial services with something that Nigel is very bullish on. We talk about their latest funding round and what Nigel would do if he was building a bank from scratch or whether he would even do that. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation to join me, Peter. My pleasure. So... Let's get started by giving the listeners a little bit of background. I know that uh, Rails Bank is in your first rodeo here, so why don't you um, give the listeners some of the highlights of what you've done in your career to date? Started out originally as, a, as an engineer in the um, world of car manufacturing, and that uh, uh, was an eye-opener because of the uh, technology used and applied on a daily basis, and a lot of the learnings from that are actually used today in, within in Rails Bank. But a friend of mine then joined a company called Goldman Sachs, who I used to work with in the car industry, and they paid him 20 to 30 times the money for the same engineering maths. <laughs> and so, so that's how I ended up going down to the city. I didn't go to Goldman, I went to Nomura and then Swiss Bank Corp. And during the time of Swiss Bank Corp, there was a thing called the internet appeared, which a lot of people may not remember that the first time when you could just email a friend of you sitting next to you. And you thought that was amazing that uh, email worked and things. But we did the very first foreign exchange trades on the internet huh. back in the uh, sort of mid 1990s. And then I founded a first company, which was a like a miniature Accenture that helped uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, Deutsche, UPS, or Swiss Bank as it was then, all utilize the internet for the front offices to uh, engage better with customers and everything. Uh, that has ended up through acquisition as part of British Aerospace or BAE Systems and the FTSE 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, parts of that still, still exist for that company. The second company I founded was a company called Currency Cloud, which was just exited to Visa about a month ago. So that's uh, two exits uh, we've, we've got. And Bells Bank is my current gig, which has been going nearly five years on the project. Before we get into Rails Bank, I want to just take a step back and kind of get your perspective. You've been around fintech for a long time and you've seen different things come and go. And we've now got this trend towards embedded finance, which I know is what uh, you're taking advantage of here. How do you define embedded finance and why do you think it's suddenly a hot topic? Uh, it's a hot topic because the media seems to like it. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's like fintech into that Q1 2012 was a hot topic because right. the media got hold of the word fintech. We've been calling it embedded finance for some time and before it was, was popular because what we fundamentally do is we enable our customers to embed finance in their consumer journeys where a consumer could be an SME or, or a retail individual. So why is it important? The important thing is, is a shift between 
finance being a function experience where you go to the bank or the banking app, there's no difference in a branch in the app, to be honest, and you do something functionally, you check an account, you send money and things, and it's it's not really embedded in the actual experience you're trying to do, like is buy a car. If you're going to buy a car, uh, that's and then you need to finance that. That is where the point and the place should be, and that's where you embed finance into the buying car experience. That's where we see there's a, a trend that's hooked into it. Part it's lots of people's marketeers, and parts it's a lot of the media. But uh, there's also a good, well thought through companies now focusing on finance being more than functional, but being an experience. And that has been driven primarily by the consumer. Right, right. What was it specifically that you saw that was an opportunity that made you, you know, decide to start RailsBank? So the RailsBank was, was not to go into embedded finance because that was a sort of realisation uh, about 12, 15 months ago. Right. That's, that's a ta moment. That's what we're doing, guys. It, it was the, the experience in Currency Cloud, building that out. My friends who built out TransferWise, a lot of the seeders, a lot of the early stage fintechs, Revolut as well, but all of these we sort of saw as, uh, as PowerPoint decks in the very early days. And everybody had to do the same thing and build their infrastructure, and that would take them nine to 18 months before they could get a customer and, right. and operate with a customer. And they're all building the same infrastructure, which is payments infrastructure, accounting infrastructure, all that type of thing. So we thought there must be a better way, and just like AWS did with machine room infrastructure, let's go and do it with finance infrastructure. And we went and built all the pieces and abstracted away all the difficulty and decoupled uh, the complex or so-called complex pieces and then just delivered it through very super simple APIs. The APIs are like Lego. You can just put the pieces of Lego you need to build the use case you want to put or embed in a financial or into a customer journey. We started off with infrastructure and simple APIs to build any use case. And that is exactly as we are today of how we operate. And it's now looking at how it actually now fits into the consumer's life as what is today called embedded finance. Right, right. Can you just maybe describe some of the different products that you enable? Like what are some of the different APIs that you have available? The basic sort of building blocks of everything are what we call banking as a service, which basically allows you to issue an account, send money, receive money, collect money, which is another another name for direct debit. Uh, And those are just the very basic pieces you need for the basics of banking. We have our cards as a service capability, and that is issue, issue card, spend money on a card, controller card as in reset the pins. And if you look at those capabilities within cards as a service, those capabilities within banking as a service, the art then is is helping customers and working partnering with customers to then say, right, I'm trying to build a wage advancing experience because consumers, the problem they're trying to solve is consumers are currently having to go to payday lenders. And if they're going to payday lenders, the issue they're facing is compound interest. And so if they can implement wage advancing by hooking into the payroll, by using our APIs and tweaking them together, and being able to issue a wage advance for 75 pence fixed price, would that be a better outcome for the consumer? 
And so uh, Wagestream, one of our customers, partnered with us uh, when they first started because they couldn't do that with traditional legacy infrastructure at all. They couldn't issue uh, half a million accounts in seconds. They just didn't have that capability. So that's an example of taking an issue account, send money and receive money, and moving money between accounts, which is send and receive money, and being able to hook around a customer problem and deliver a use case that solves that customer problem, which is compound interest and financial health. And that gives us just an example. Imagine Lego or imagine going to supermarket. Our APIs are like all the vegetables, goods you have there. The recipes that you can either pick up the recipe from the Sainsbury's recipe on how to make a lasagna. And it says, buy this, this, and this. And hey, presto, you've got a lasagna. Or you've got people who are chefs who can go in and just know what to pick. And it's the same sort of thing. People can just use our recipes or they can uh, figure out the APIs themselves because they've done that before. Right, right. I imagine you're not really working with traditional banks at all. You mentioned Wagestream, really like what those guys are doing. And are you really focused on fintech companies or what about non-financial institutions? We're focused on two segments, which is fintech and we call brands. So brands, for example, uh, McLaren Formula One is, is a customer. So they're looking at how finance within their fan base can engage the fan base in, in a more meaningful way. Instead of every couple of weekends during the Formula One season, if you use finance, you can be embedded with your uh, consumer on the daily lives as well. We don't sell to banks unless it's a, a neobank, which is I put of, we put into the fintech bucket. We don't actually sell to your traditional legacy banks. The reason is, is if you look at how we've built our our philosophy behind our infrastructure, we're totally vertically integrated banking as a service, cards as a service products, and, and also uh, credit as a service. And we go goal, and we, this is what we achieved in, say, you know, UK and Europe business, is to connect the consumer all the way through to the central bank with no legacy. So no legacy infrastructure, no legacy risk management processes. So we don't have a third-party bank telling us what business we can and can't do. It's totally up to us because we cleared sterling directly ourselves. No legacy operations to cause problems with our customers. And so we have this total no legacy vertical integrated stack philosophy of software operations and regulatory licenses and scheme licenses like Visa and MasterCard. So we can deliver the value that our customers actually want. And we don't have the impact of the legacy, uh, we call it the legacy Saurus, <laughs> impacting your business and your, and your operational excellence and your pricing and what business you can and can't do. Right, right. So one thing that I, I've been really curious about is that everyone talks about legacy infrastructure, which obviously at one point in time was cutting edge technology. And how are you thinking about it where your technology that you're creating today will be legacy technology in a decade or certainly in two decades. Um, how are you thinking about it internally about you know, making sure that your technology doesn't become legacy technology? See, it's the same way as Amazon, same way as Facebook. Everybody, you're continually, technology is not built and deployed and left alone, uh, which was the old model. It's basically very expensive, built it, it, it sits there, and you then do some modifications to it. And then you have a release every week or at least a year or released every 10 months or three months. If your engineering is all set up into continuous, basic continuous releases, you may not realize if you're on Facebook, there's probably had 10, 15 releases of functionality behind the scenes of bug fixes 
that you're totally unaware of just happened for you. And there's the same sort of thing is you're permanently adding functionality, deprecating uh, dead code, fixing bugs, and it's always going on. So your software essentially becomes a living organism mm-hmm. that's permanently going forward. And that thinking, Google does it, and most all the big tech companies do it, and lots of fintech companies too, is a mindset thing and it's an experience thing. And it's very difficult to do if you've got legacy because the legacy isn't written to be continuous deployment. It's not written to work in that mindset, sort of a skill set. And so you can start working on no legacy platforms and you continually improving going forward rather than uh, continue putting technical debt, which is uh, unfortunately legacy ends up with lots and lots and lots of technical debt because when it was all written, they didn't have the concept of continual releases. Right. You guys are, I think, I believe, based in the UK, but what markets are you actually operating in? Our largest market at the moment is UK and Europe. So operating across that, and we now got to split UK and Europe apart uh, because of good old Brexit. We're up and live and running up customers in North America. And we have customers live in APAC as well. So in APAC, we're live in Australia and in Singapore, and we'll be lighting up uh, three or four new countries over the next 18 months. And so growth plans are to consolidate US, consolidate the APAC region, and continue to uh, grow and build out more out of into Eastern Europe and Nordics in our UK and Europe business. So then how, how hard is it? Because, I mean, obviously... Finance is very local and there's different regulations and different customer expectations uh, in different geographies. But what do you need to change if you're going into Australia or the US or Spain, for example? We designed the APIs and the platform to be able to deliver everything globally in terms of issue account doesn't change whichever region you are. And being able to issue an account behind the scenes, we have what's called Rails Bank, a rail that is specific to, say, the UK or to Spain or to whichever jurisdiction you're in. Because in each jurisdiction, you've then got not just uh, some technology challenges uh, with, say, connecting up to the central bank, or you've got uh, legal frameworks, you've got regulatory frameworks, you've got different KYC, uh, et cetera. But that's all hidden behind the scenes. And our, our goal was to make sure we're something like, uh, say, Salesforce and totally always on platform the common API and approach to API and it's multi-tenanted and everything across the world, we just hide what's needed for localization. So it's the same thing if you get onto a plane, it's pretty much the same everywhere in the world. The regulations for flying in China are different from regulations for flying in, say, across Europe and different from the US, but that's all hidden behind the scenes. You're a consumer, you get the same experience. So what we learned at Currency Cloud, what we learned at, at all the way back in the evolution of how do you build global? And what you don't build global is you've just got to decouple what the product should look like and does look like, and then what local requirements are to actually implement that capability in a local market. Interesting. Okay. When you're looking at the geography of the world, and obviously you, you, you've mentioned quite a few regions there, are there, are there specific regions that are more open to this sort of embedded finance model or is or do you finding it pretty much wherever you go fintech entrepreneurs are really open to it the the hard work was done from 2012 to around 2016 2019 that's sort of when the, the first sort of wave of fintech came through 
Uh, so the the idea of opening up markets, trusting non-bank finance institutions, essentially, and that mindset of the consumer has changed, and, and the media has played a wonderful role in helping on that, and regulators have also played great roles in, in helping that and promoting. So we see there's different stages of markets, though. I uh, say so UK and Europe probably the most developed. Some of the Southeast Asian markets have developed, other ones are developing, but they're going there. The Barcode, I'd say, is the most backward is actually the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, because the legacy really is embedded there. So they've, they've got a different problem of embedded finance. They've got an embedded legacy. That's <laughs> <laughs> a real problem in that market. But there's, there's ways around it. We've figured out some ways around that we, how we operate there and our future plans of how we operate there too, with a similar sort of model that we have in the UK, Europe, and, and other Southeast Asian countries. Right, right. What do you think is the is the biggest opportunity here? You know, you, met, you mentioned McLaren, obviously non non financial services firm. You know, financial services is massive vertical that uh, probably could spend your entire business focused on. But how big is sort of this brand type business you talked about for financial services? How big is that compared to fintech companies that are really focused on financial services? The research most people are referring to is it's done by uh, Bain Capital and also by a chap called Simon Torrance, an independent consultant. And if I remember rightly, their numbers are there's roughly about 3.6 trillion of, of stuff from a revenue side within the traditional banking and insurance market at the moment. Their predictions are if you start opening it up and brands, people like Nike, uh, Lululemon, Apple's already doing it distributing finance uh, and using finance as a as a tool to engage with consumers and understand consumers and deliver more relevant things to consumers and up the, the cadence of, of interactions with consumers. We see that market, and I don't see any reason that the numbers that I've been through with Simon quite often, his uh, ways of thinking, is it's a, a $7 trillion market. So there's an increase of basically $3.4 trillion that can be attributable to embedded finance over the next 10 years. So that's a positive side. And then it could also be encroached into existing $3.6 trillion, shifting the money out of probably some of the traditional banks into the, the brands. But the, the brands more from a distribution perspective and banks going back to being places of safety with solid balance sheets as, as well. So we can see how the two play together nicely. A parallel industry, if you looked at uh, how the iTunes, which is, uh, wasn't an invention, it was just a marketing tool because the MP4 was a uh, well-invented bill before that, that one innovation massively changed the music industry because it, you didn't have to buy 29 terrible tracks to get one track you wanted. You can 99 cents and you've got the track you wanted and you can build your own albums and super easy rather than pressing tape recorders and all that stuff we used to do as kids. And that's now created an industry where the power shift has moved away from the, the record labels to some extent, as it will do from the banks, but the record labels still play a key role in that ecosystem, the sense of custody of music catalogs, for example. And so uh, we see a similar thing in finance where banks still have a role in there. There's a different role in the economics, it's like different, but there are places of certainty. They're, well, they're run by very good people, et cetera. And they're centers of where capital can be laid to rest in the bank and stored and then leveraged up into to assets, into loans, et cetera. So that's our, our view of the world is 
there's new money being created, there's some that will be taken away the traditional, and there'll be a, a new infrastructure and market structure that delivers on that. Right, right. Super interesting. Like, so basically, the pie can double in the, in the next decade is what you're saying, which... Uh, that's, yeah, that's uh, a simple version, yes. That's, yeah. that's much more eloquent than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to I want to switch gears and, and talk about earlier this year an acquisition, or it might have been last year, the, the acquisition you made of Wirecard Services, where you know obviously the Wirecard scandal, the company imploded. There was a lot of there was fraud. Like anything, there was also I'm sure some good pieces of that business. But tell us why you decided to acquire Wirecard Services. What was in it for Railsbank? We were building our cards at the time. We knew the previous incarnation of Wirecard, which is called the Newcastle Building Society. And a lot of people were still there who were at the Newcastle Building Society. That was purely the commercial side. So we thought, hey, if we acquire that, we can step change our card business. Uh, The other piece was we didn't think we needed a, a massive failure within the fintech market of so this this business going totally bust and consumers losing trust in fintech because a set of people in the in city management wirecard decided to be fraudulent uh, players so this helping the market makes good commercial sense to us and i approached a colleague of mine who was on the uh, advisory board of wirecard and just said look we're, we're super interested we want to make sure it's a an orderly uh, market is created. FinTech is important. We don't see too many failures or anything like that because it loses confidence in us. We can help here. Lots of negotiations and all the typical thing you go through an M&A deal. We ended up acquiring it, and migrating it over to us in just, I think, two and a half weeks. And now that the, a lot of the customers, I think a good 95% are still all operating there. Wow. So, and all all it's success, and I, I think the, the sad thing is, is uh, some people from Wirecard are getting sort of tainted with the with the brush of fraud when they shouldn't do. Is it was a good company? There's a lot of very good people in there. A lot of them work for us in UK and in Germany. As we open up a Munich office purely because of that, uh, I think we should just if they got it on their CV, be proud. They were let down by a few others, just like uh, Bearings was let down by, by Nick Leeson. Right, got it. I read recently you have a partnership with Plaid. Obviously, Plaid is really at the, the center of financial services, uh, particularly in, in, in the US and also increasingly in Europe. Tell us a little bit about um, that relationship and what, what you're doing there. The way we look at uh, product is customers drive everything. And one a lot of our customers wanted the ability to do essentially what's called payment initiation, as in pay by bank transfer and have use cases around that and also wanted access to uh, finance data. So it's a account aggregation and build use cases around it. And we looked at doing it all ourselves. And if you look at the open banking side, it's meant to be open, but it's, it's open, but complex because every bank is fundamentally different. And anybody tells you different is, is, is wrong. <laughs> look at why, why do we have true layer? Why do we have plaid? They just sold it for all of the banks because they are subtly different which is what happens when you get a protocol designed by a committee. So instead of us having to reinvent it, they're a world-class company and they know these use cases very well. They're essentially utility. And so we decided to partner with them rather than build 
because us to try and build that would have been a two-year project, whereas we could come to market, satisfy customers who could satisfy their consumers and uh, do it super fast and everybody's happy. And it uh, doesn't make sense for us to reinvent something that is uh, a portion of our product set rather than something like credit we're into. It's massively differentiated on part of our product set. Right. Um, I want to talk about funding. You recently closed a $70 million funding round. You know, that's it's a sizable sum, although these days uh, there's it's fintech has had has such many large funding rounds, we still forget that $70 million is still a, a decent-sized round. Tell us a little bit about who your investors are and, and what you're going to be using that money for. The money is going to be used for uh, invest in three main areas. We invest in uh, the team, so it's, we call it putting rocket fuel in, in the team. We invest in, uh, in cement in the foundations, which is making sure things uh, are strong and reliable and can grow, and growth, uh, which is new markets, new products and things. We're investing that in different balances across our three business units of UK and Ireland, North America and Southeast Asia, because if you imagine UK and Europe is uh, essentially a Series C business, our US business is a pre-Series A, and uh, our APAC business is a, a Series A business. So you deploy capital in different ways into those businesses and because they've got different growth curves and things. So across the balance of basically people, reliability, and core infrastructure so we can scale and growth, we balance across those three in the different areas. So it's growth in Southeast Asia, it's growth in North America, and it's cemented the foundations and a bit of growth as well for UK and Europe. And it's people across the whole business because uh, people power everything. Uh, it's not just technology. Right, right. People make everything happen. Okay, so we're almost out of time, but a couple more things I want to get to. I'd, I'd love to get your perspective here. If you were starting a bank today, and obviously this would be a digital bank, and if you were starting it from scratch, how would you go about assembling all the different pieces, and including like your, your core banking solution? I'm slightly cynical on why the world needs more digital banks. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot of them actually don't really differentiate. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the core product behind the bank uh, and a digital one or, or, and stuff, a, a, a current account is no different from anybody else. Some have slightly, they get some different rewards and some interest and, and stuff, but the current account is a totally undifferentiated product. Right. Ditto the same with the sending money, receiving money, say where UK faster payments are backed, it's a totally undifferentiated product. The UK faster payments aren't faster from one place to the other by definition. So I would actually wouldn't advise against building another digital bank unless it's in a market which, uh, uh, say, Pakistan, for example, where there is no a real digital uh, penetration of, of banking and, and the uh, developed markets, you'll see there's a couple of dominant players. And let's say you've got Beverage, you've got Monzo, you've got Chime and, and others. And the, the, I think the next wave is not really a digital bank. It's about building a digital consumer experience that has finance in it and taking what is a current account, making it into the Lululemon account or something, and then building experiences around that and then linking it back perhaps to your, to your open banking, to your, to your Barclays account. I would be slightly reticent of trying to build yet another digital bank because if you roll that on 30 years, look what's happened to the US market with 6,000 uh, subscale banks. 
that it's not great for the market and subscale balance sheets. The only reason some of them are in business is because the fintech wave uses them as sponsorship, sponsoring. Right. <laughs> That's the only reason. Uh, Sutton is 92% of the flow from Marketo will go through Sutton Bank, for example, that's a massive concentration risk. So I, I'd be slightly wrestling. If I was going to, if I had to build one from scratch, uh, you'd want to build it on something that's always on. You don't have to piece everything and integrate together. Uh, you could build it on Wales Bank, and we have I think we've got 46 neo banks based on top of Wales Bank already. And you don't want to be in the game of infrastructure. You want to be in the game of product, customer experience, and delivering upon that. So we don't actually work with digital banks. We take those out of fintech, if you see what I mean. So they're more digital manifestations of that West when they tried with Bow, for example, and there's 100 million money just thrown down the drain with that for 11,000 customers. And coming back to a digital bank is, I think, you, like with all product, all businesses, you've got to figure out what gives you edge, what's your value prop that people are going to buy to you. And I think Bo learned this the hard way. 11,000 customers compared to us as Wells Bank, we've got uh, 6.7 million cards and accounts issued. That's done on less time uh, than it took to, I think, build Bo. So should really go at the cast the question is the first thing I've said instead of building it is prototyping the value prop with consumers or with consumers or SMEs or private individuals. If you achieve that, you get a lot of good data. Then you go to the next thing, which is how do you build it? Because have people bought the value prop or not? That's what I think a lot of digital banking side has actually missed. The core value prop has missed. So last question, I'd love to sort of have you gaze into your crystal ball if you would, and talk about like the future of embedded finance, it sounds you feel like the whole brand kind of approach is is going to come to dominate. But uh, I'd love to kind of, you know, get your sense of what you think the future holds and what will Rails Banks, um, you know, what will this role be? The future is starting to come a little bit uh, clearer in the crystal ball. If you look at what Apple and Goldman have done, Apple are phenomenal at creating customer experiences. And the Apple Card is an experience that uh, consumers use, and it's now becoming endemic and part of their, their process, so they're making money out of it too. Goldman are very good at, at balance sheet and aren't hugely good at retail customer experience. It's not, not their bag you know, on a mass scale. So putting those two things together, that's embedded finance to all intents and purposes. It's, it's very bespoke embedded finance. So that's something you go down to Savile Row uh, type of thing. So I think the real opportunity there is the, the Marks and Spencers of better finance, and that's what Rails Bank is. We want them to be one of the, the largest platforms that powers this industry like AWS does for data centers. It will be the same for uh, embedded finance. So it's all about scale. It's all about pret-a-porter, ready-to-wear, all that approach. And that, that's what we've uh, built Rails Bank to be. Okay, well, it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how it all evolves. Uh, Nigel, I very much appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you for the invitation, and I hope it's useful to your audience. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it will be. Thanks. See ya. This whole idea of brands uh, integrating financial services you know, to increase loyalty of their customer base, you know, it really is something that has just getting started and has... I agree with Nigel, huge potential. I mean, you're talking about doubling the, the pie of total, total financial services. And I see as embedded finance matures and as 
the you know the code base matures, it's only going to get easier and less expensive for brands to offer not just a co-branded credit card with you know with Chase or City or someone else as the as the bank behind it, but really having uh, their own experience where the, the entire way that you interact with the financial product is is really built in the way that is totally congruent with the brand. And I think that's what we haven't seen much of. I mean, you see it with the Apple Card, which uh, which Nigel talked about, and you know, how that's a financial product that's really integrated into the way we think about Apple products. And so there's certainly opportunities uh, for other brands to do something similar. And it is really going to be fascinating to see uh, how this develops this coming decade. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.